We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight, as we always do, to those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Stars and Strikes, Baseball and America in the Bicentennial Summer of 76, the publisher, Thomas Dunn Books, the author, Dan Epstein, uh, by the way, it is Epstein, not it Epstein. Is Epstein. Okay. <laughs> you got it. We had a little discussion about that before. Okay. Uh, before we, before you join me in welcoming Dan to the clubhouse, sort of welcoming back in a way, uh, we should also celebrate the not just the season of '76, but the wedding of Dan and Katie uh, <laughs> three, four days ago. <laughs> So Katie's gift for the evening only is Sinatra. Oh, well, she's very happy about it. That's that's a beautiful thing. And to those listening, they have no idea what that means, but that's fine. So it's really a a beautiful book, and I I really enjoyed reading this. You you. you took me back to the age of 16, and I think maybe a good place to start is how you started the book. If you could take us back and take yourself back to when you were 10 and what it felt like and everything. Well, looking back, 10 seems to be the the age when, I don't know, like my consciousness opened to things beyond G.I. Joe and Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> and it got, it got a little broader. And, you know... It, it was the year that I fell in love with baseball, 1976, and a big part of that was the Bad News Bears. They, uh, I went with, and I talk about it in the intro of the book, I went with my friend Tim and a bunch of other friends uh, and Tim's parents in a, uh, like a Chevy or Dodge conversion van. <laughs> Took us all out for Tim's birthday to go see the Bad News Bears and at theater in Ann Arbor, and I wasn't really that interested in baseball at that point. I, w- I was kind of a military history geek. I was really into reading about you know World War One and the Civil War and the American Revolution. So I was very excited about the bicentennial because you know everything about the American Revolution was sort of pushed to the front, and people were talking about the great battles of that war and the statesmen involved in the Declaration of Independence and all of this. But I, I, I went to see the Bad News Bears, and it was a revelation because it, the kids on the screen looked and talked and behaved like me and my friends. So it was, it was this sort of like, wow, like we, you know, because, you know, you're a kid in Michigan, and there's Hollywood, and it's this whole other world. And, but, but when you see essentially yourself on screen, it makes you feel like you're real somehow. So that was, that was a, a huge thing. And then we went back to Tip's house, and for party favors, we all got wax packs of Topps 1976 baseball cards. This, was, this would have been April 76. And, you know, I, I, I think I got, like, the Hank Aaron RBI all-time leaders card or something <laughs> like that. I was like, yeah, I've heard of Hank Aaron. That's cool. But then there were all these these other plays, like Raleigh Fingers. It's like, wow, there's a guy named Raleigh Fingers? He's a pitcher? And look at that mustache. You know, and it just, it just kind of sent me down this rabbit hole. And, and I took them 
to my the cars to my father the next day because I knew my dad really liked baseball, but um, and he would go to games with his friends, but you know, had never taken me because I'd really not shown any interest. So all of a sudden, I'm showing interest and you know, asking him what the numbers on the back meant, and and it, it kind of like hit the same kind of nerve that you know that history did for me, you know, with military history, where it was like. I, you know, I want to know about these guys and their campaigns and their, you know, numbers and, you know, it's like, it's like you know, uh, you know, how many planes, you know, uh, the Red Baron shot down. Well, I want to know now how many home runs these guys hit and how many games they won. And I, I just dove off the deep end. Also helped by my dad gave me a copy of uh, The Boys of Summer uh, shortly thereafter by Roger Kahn and he grew up in Brooklyn, huge Dodgers fan, and so it, it, it helped me put together a lot about you know my dad's childhood, and I, it, it it just was like like this whole new world opened up to me, and I could see all the connections where you know um, this sort of historical factor and the way that like each season was different than the next season in terms of the characters and. And and then the way that fans related to the game and how they you know how personally they took it, and then uh, you know we were living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, late May, all my friends started talking about this weird guy who's pitching for the Tigers. He's got curly hair and talks to the ball, and and you know behaves kind of strange out on the mound, but he's but he's a really good pitcher, and and so I, I completely uh, you know got in on bird mania, Mark Fidrich, uh, you know, on the ground floor. And so it just, it just kind of took off from there. By the, by the middle of the summer, I was reading the sporting news and, you know, internalizing every box score that, it, that I could get my hands on. And, and so, um, you know, it, it, this book, you know, it's definitely a love letter in a sense because this was, this was it for me. This was year zero. And uh, and it turns out that it was also, you know, a really important year for a lot of other people, for you know, for baseball, for America, for music. So you know, it just it just was a, a very natural thing for me to sink my teeth into. Just out of interest, did, uh, since you had not not gone to a game with your dad before that, did you go that sometime that season? Yes, I did. And my first game was at uh, Tiger Stadium, uh, May thirtieth, nineteen seventy six. Uh, Yankees Tigers Sunday afternoon ball game, and you know we walked. Tigers were so bad at that point that if if the bird wasn't pitching, you could just walk up and like get seats behind home plate, no problem. So we did, and I remember it's still so vivid in my mind. Billy Martin arguing with the umpires while handing over the lineup card, <laughs> and then they threw him out of the game before the game even started. You know, and, there's, and, and the, you know what? I, you know the hundred or so Tigers fans are there, just like yeah. And yeah, I remember turning my turning to my dad, and be like, "What was that? What happened?" And he's just like, you know, they had a disagreement about something, and you know the managers get thrown out. And and you know, much later, I realized that Billy was probably still really hungover from the <laughs> night before, I just like wanted to get a head start over at the Lindell AC. <laughs> Well, that's a great first game. Yes, great first game. I saw Thurman Munson and Roy White hit homers. The Tigers lost, uh, which was unfortunate because then as now they're my American League team. But uh, but it was still a thrill to see you know Mickey Rivers and Thurman Munson and and uh, I'm, I'm Facebook friends now with um, Rudy May, who pitched a shutout that day for uh, for the Yankees. And I actually like 
uh, messaged him about that, and he, and he was like, "Do you have a good time?" And I'm like, "Man, I had a great time." <laughs> and, and then my first uh, National League game was that summer uh, in August. It was a Dodgers Red Series at, at Dodger Stadium. Uh, I was out visiting my mom, who lived in L.A., and I remember we went to the game. Uh, w- with a friend of hers who was driving a white Volkswagen van that was covered, the entire interior was covered with pictures of Mayor Baba, the like, you know, Eastern avatar, a bald guy with a huge okay. nose that Pete Townsend followed. And looking back, that was somehow very appropriate too, that like I should see, you know, <laughs> go to a game surrounded by Mayor Baba images. And, and it, it turns out that, that that was, as I realized much later, actually while I was researching Stars and Strikes, that that was a really crucial series in the uh, in the National League West race, was that the, um, the Reds hadn't quite completely pulled away from the, from the, uh, um, uh, from the Dodgers. But they proceeded to sweep the Dodgers in four straight that series, and that was it, pretty much the Dodgers. And then the Dodgers went to Pittsburgh the next night and got no hit by John Candelaria. And that was pretty much the stake in their heart, and the big red machine just kind of rolled all the way after that. We have some uh, Candelaria hats that just came in. very nice. We'll get back to the book in a second, but in in your bio, so obviously you have this Tigers uh, fanaticism that starts. But it, you also talked about at some point you picked the Cubs up as your National League team. Well, the Dodgers were my National League team early on because that was the you know the first team I'd see, gone to see in the National League. And I loved Ron Say. Like, the, the whole notion of the Penguin, I was just enchanted <laughs> by. So, uh, uh, but I moved to Chicago in uh, late 79. And actually was much more excited about the prospect of seeing the White Sox because... I was very interested in Bill Vec and everything he was doing with him and had done with them in terms of promotions and you know he just you know even to a 12 year old kid he was re- it was obvious that he was really you know he had great personality great ideas and uh, I was uh, uh, very interested in, in, in him but I we lived on the north side and the Cubs played about a mile north of where I went to school. And you could go after, you know, we got out of school at 2.30, and you could walk up to Wrigley Field, and for the last couple of innings, uh, you know, they'll let you in for a couple bucks or maybe nothing, depending on their mood. So I wound up uh, getting indoctrinated into the Cubs cult fairly uh, quickly. And, you know, Comiskey was just too much of a pain in the ass to get down to, so, <laughs> so I became a Cubs fan. Well, that makes sense. The So now to get into the book... Uh, well, one of the things that you did that I really loved is each chapter is a month of the season, but right. the, the chapter name is the name of a song. Right. And a name of a song from 1976. From, right. And that, that was intentional. Um, I, I really, you know, AM radio was so big for me as a kid, and, you know, all that box score studying, all that stratomatic baseball playing I did was to the tune of, you know, the AM hits whatever, you know, whatever city I was in. And, you know, every Sunday I listened to Casey Kasem's American Top 40. So I, I wanted to, you know, in an ideal world I would have included a uh, CD or a, you know, iPod playlist or something uh, full of 1976 jams for the reader. But I just thought, like, this would be a way to kind of uh, get a, a kind of subliminal soundtrack going. Like, 
you know, chances are you've heard most or all of the songs that the titled after. So, you know, you're reading the Strange Magic chapter. You will hear ELO playing Strange Magic in the back of your mind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a good thing, I hope. Absolutely. No, it, it definitely did that. And uh, so now let's, there, there's a lot going on that year. In, in, there's a lot going on not in baseball, but let's start with baseball. If you could tell us a little bit about opening day, which kind of ties in baseball and the bicentennial. So, in Philly. Oh man, in Philly, Philly really took it over the top for opening day. I mean, you know, it's, it's the bicentennial, so there's a lot of uh, interests uh, about what's happening in Philadelphia, and they've got a big celebration planned, and they start on opening day. By, let me see if I can get the order of events correct. <laughs> There's a Paul Revere impersonator who rides, I believe, 300 miles uh, into Veteran Stadium. Uh, in, in it, it was it was not his his uh, the British are coming ride. It's an earlier one that uh, <laughs> more obscure uh, Paul Revere deep cut, if you will. <laughs> and, and so then he rides into the stadium, and ha- and he has a baseball, like in his you know saddlebag, hands it to a guy wearing a rocket pack, who then proceeds to like take off and whiz around over the top of the stadium, and then like lands. And uh, Robin Roberts, who is a Philly's great pitcher, who has just been elected to the Hall of Fame, jumps out of a giant float shaped like a baseball, and then. <laughs> Uh, the Rocket Man hands him the ball, and then Roberts throws out the first pitch. And so, you know, opening day. And, and it really kind of set the tone for, in a lot of ways, for the Phillies that season. It was the first time, one of being the first time the Phillies went to the playoffs or the postseason since 1950. And for most of the season, at least, there was a real looseness around that team. It's really interesting collection of characters, guys like Dick Allen, Mike Schmidt, Dave Cash, Greg Lazinski, um, Tug McGraw, and the you know that they seemed to really kind of have it all figured out. They were a multiracial team. They were a lot of the guys were doing transcendental meditation. Uh, they they were having uh, cold duck parties on the road where they bring in a case of cold duck and everybody just like hang around and shoot the shit and and you know they seem they they seem to have it game and then unfortunately like the end of the season it just all fell apart. Uh, uh, much you know around the behavior of Dick Allen, uh, the controversial and often misunderstood uh, slugger. Yeah, let's let's talk about him because a lot of the other guys get spoken about a lot. Mike Schmidt, Tug McGraw, cer- certain guys are. Uh, he's a guy that, in some ways, doesn't really get his due for whatever that means. So maybe just talk about him a little. Well, I th- you know, I think Dick Allen was one of the great sluggers of his era. I think. You know, he he had some personal issues, which um, you know occasionally manifested itself. And I mean, he was a guy who would like to you know have a couple of scotches before the game, as well as after. Uh, he he would, you know, he was just not a guy who enjoyed taking orders. And he and Chuck Tanner, when he was managing Allen on the White Sox, really kind of had him figured out. It was just like just let Dick do his thing. And he he will carry the team, and he and so many of his teammates over the years, you know, have come forward saying, you know, he gets a he got a bad rap. He was a great teammate. He was super supportive. Mike Schmidt and Greg Lozinski on the Phillies, like basically, you know, when when Allen came back to the Phillies in '75, they just made a beeline to him and just like 
tell us about hitting. And you know, and he 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 was basically responsible for Mike Schmidt's partially responsible for Mike Schmidt's four home run game in 1976 against the Cubs. It was just like. Is Schmidt was Martin terrible slump, and he was just like, man, you know, have some fun with it. Use a lighter bat, just you know, get out there and you know, play like you did when you were a kid. Um, and unfortunately, uh, there was there were a couple of incidents later in the season where uh, Allen got hurt, didn't really feel like he had the backing of Danny Ozark, the Phillies manager. Um, you know, at least in terms of his you know things that Ozark said about Allen to the press. And then uh, after the Phillies won the National League East pennant, there was an incident where the um, the players all kind of you know were whooping it up, and Allen Allen kind of took offense at that. He felt like you know all we've done is win the division. We haven't won the playoffs. We haven't won the World Series. Why are you guys carrying on like this? So he had sort of a separate celebration with a couple of the other guys, where they just popped a bottle of champagne, said a little prayer, just kind of chilled out. And then uh, after after that series was over, he decided that he just wanted to go home for the rest of the season. And <laughs> you know, I I'm a Dick Allen fan, but like that's you know I can understand how that would rub some people wrong. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, the the you know a lot of the players on the Phillies were like, like why does he get special treatment? Why does he get to go home? One of the reasons Allen went home was that he felt that Tony Taylor, who had been, you know, on the Phillies since the early '60s, was total, or well, not since, but he, he he dated back to that period and was a total fan favorite, and he'd been left off the postseason roster by the Phillies, and Allen felt that that this was a racial thing and that the upper management of the Phillies were, you know, were. Um, Basically, bringing all this racist stuff to bear on um, on the team, and it just it just kind of metastasized really quickly from there. Tug McGraw was claiming that you know like the black guys were against the white guys, and you know, and they and and meanwhile Schmidt was sort of aligned with the black guys, but nobody really talked about that at the time. And, uh, you know, I mean, even if they'd all been on the same page, I'm sure they still would have been crushed right. by the big red machine yeah. in the playoffs. Uh, but but it it really it was kind of a shame how how badly the season ended you know for you know the first really good Phillies team in several decades that they and and during the bicentennial as well. And one of the things that you go to uh, go in the book in depth is that year happened to have some amazing uh, owners. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things about '76 is this is. You've got George Steinbrenner, who's just back from serving close to a two-year suspension for uh, con- illegally contributing to Nixon's re-election campaign. <laughs> so he's back and ready to, to do his thing with the Yankees. And, and the Yankees have their new stadium, you know, the new old stadium. Um, you have Charlie Finley essentially presiding over the complete dismantling of one of the greatest teams to ever play baseball, the Oakland A's. Uh, you know, who still almost won the American League West despite everything <laughs> Finley tried to do to them. You have uh, Bill Beck, who has just bought the White Sox again and has, you know, uh, you know re, uh, reinstalled the fireworks in the exploding scoreboard and has uh, installed the shower in the center field bleachers and is having all these, these great event nights to get people to come see his lousy team on the south side. 
You've got Ted Turner, who's just bought the Braves, who is also trying all kinds of um, promotions to get people to see his lousy team at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And uh, and and they they're all they all get in trouble at one point during the season <laughs> you know, or another with with Bowie Kuhn or or the presidents of their respective leagues. They all like you know make as many or more headlines as their own players do. And and after '76, you know, Finley kind of falls off the radar a little bit. He, he you know he he just has uh, terrible teams in Oakland for the remainder of his time there, really. And he stops being this like major mover and shaker, but and and Beck really only had you know another couple of years of glory with the uh, with the White Sox. But for that for that one year, you've got all four of them just you know causing problems, and it's remarkably entertaining. Which probably that that could never happen again, given corporate ownership and things. You oh just, yeah, you know. No, I mean I I think you know one of the things that re- that really hit home when researching this book was was how uncorporate. The world was the world, and, and but baseball in particular, and you know how they didn't, you know they didn't have their shit together from a marketing standpoint at all. They, 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 you know, it, it's just amazing to me, like how, um, you know, people thought Ted Turner was an idiot for broadcasting Braves games all the time. <laughs> just like, well, if you, if you, if you. Put your team on TV. Nobody's going to come and see them. Yeah. And Turner knew that no, this is this is going to help me build my yeah. you know television empire. And of course, now every team has a cable deal. Every team has you know has you know is making millions off off their you know TV associations. And uh, you know, but at the time, it just it, it just mystified everyone. Like, why would you want to do that? Like. You know, as as a fan in 1976, I, I remember there were only a couple times a week that I could even see baseball on television. Right. There was Game of the Week, there was Monday Night Baseball, and usually the Tigers had you know a local broadcast, maybe Saturday afternoon, maybe Thursday night, and that was it. You know, it wasn't like now where you know I've got the MLB package, you know, which I never watched, <laughs> but which which I can see, you know, all all teams all the time. Yeah. We'll, we'll quickly get to some questions from our uh, knowledgeable crowd, but a, a couple of other things to go through first. Uh, one guy, which I... It, it's another way baseball has changed, because this player, his head size shrunk considerably, as opposed to Barry Bonds, whose head size expanded considerably <laughs> for, for other reasons. I think you're talking about Oscar Gamble, Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, this is... Uh, Oscar Gamble, man, he... Uh, for the first... Well, from 73 to 75, Oscar Gamble had the greatest afro in the major leagues. Just in the world? Yeah, in the world, yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you go up against certain ABA stars, Artis <laughs> Gilmore may have been yeah. close. But the... So, he has the both good and bad fortune to get traded to the Yankees in, the, in late 75 from the Indians. And the Yankees, uh, Steinbrenner, George Steinbrenner, Billy Martin, the one thing that they can agree upon is that they want their players to look neat. They have, like, no no beards, no long hair, no sideburns, no, you know, like, no necklaces, no no even, like, long stirrups. It was really, like, you know, we want, we want this to be a conservative-looking team. And Oscar Gamble shows up at spring training with a huge beard, giant fro, and he's just signed a deal 
to do Afrosheen commercials. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he's, and, you know, this is at a time when not many players are getting, you know, a whole lot in the way. You know, it's like Fred Lynn is doing Botany 500 ads. On <laughs> and he's like the best player in the game. Yeah. You know, that, that's what he gets. And Tom Seaver is, is pimping uh, uh, leisure suits yeah. for Sears. Yeah. <laughs> so... And, and uh, so, you know, Oscar shows up, and Billy Martin says, like, I'm not even going to give you a uniform until you get that thing cut. And, uh, you know, Oscar was, was, you know, was always kind of a team player and, just, you know, pretty mild-mannered, good-natured guy, and was just like, well, you know, uh, I will lose my effort shooting endorsement, but if I don't cut my hair, then maybe I don't play, and, you know, that's what I'm here to do. So uh, he... Uh, they found a barber, I think it was a Sunday, and they, they found a barber at the hotel, and he had, I think his hat size went from eight to seven and a half. <laughs> and his wife, uh, it's very sad, his wife wept while she saw it being sheared off. And, uh, but Elston Howard, who was the Yankees' uh, uh, one black coach, was, was kind of there to offer moral support, and he was, he was gathering up the hair in a basket and saying, like, he was going to make a wig for himself out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, but so he, he you know, it deprived the world of a great Afro-shooting commercial uh, or, or two, but uh, he wound up having a pretty solid year for, for the Yankees, you know, as a, you know, left-handed designated hitter, mostly, and occasional yeah. right fielder, but... Uh, then, of course, the, the next year he, he's traded to the, the White Sox for uh, Bucky Dent and uh, immediately regrows it. So, <laughs> all's well that ended well. Yeah, for everybody, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just a, on a bit of a serious uh, note, if you could talk a little bit about the American League batting race between George Brett and Hal McCray. Yeah, this was interesting. The um, McCray and Brett teammates, uh, you know, it's really the first great Kansas City Royals team. And they are, you know, the, uh, along with Amos Otis, they are really the, you know, star of the show offensively. And all season long, they're kind of like, you know, passing each other back and forth in the, you know, in the batting top ten in the American League. And people kept saying to them, like, you know, well, who's going to win? And they're like, we don't want to talk about it. We're just happy we're winning games. Well, it came down to the last game uh, in Kansas City against the Twins, and uh, Brett uh, McRae and Rod Carew were all with, and Carew, who I believe had won the last five titles, maybe four or five titles in a row, and so they were all within like one, one or two points of each other. And um, the last time up for Brett, he hits a ball that. Um, twins outfielder misplays pretty drastically, and the thing go it drops and then uh, you know scoots off on Kansas City AstroTurf. Brett circles the bases inside the park home run. McCray comes up next and grounds out. As soon as he is called out, he starts screaming, claiming that Gene Mock and the Twins conspired to let Brett win the batting title because they're racists. And, um, you know, he had to be, you know, forcibly pulled away uh, from the from Mock and, and, and the Twins. He was just, you know, uh, really, really angry about it. And, you know, it, it, there was actually an investigation launched by the commissioner's office into, you know, what actually had happened. And it was just determined, like, yeah, it was just, 
a misplay. There was no, you know, um, no bad intent. Um, and and of course, like you know, Rod Carew was in the running as well. And and so for them to for McCray to say that they were racist because they wanted Brett to win instead of him doesn't really wash. But my theory has always been that that McCray was really disliked by most of his, you know, uh, opposing players because he was such a hard-nosed player, you know, and used to just, like, waste guys going into second base, uh, you know, on a double play. And if there was any plot to deprive him of the title, it was due to that, not the color of his skin. But George Brett said that, you know, that was a real bummer of a way to win a a batting (laughs) title. All right, so now uh, who wants to lead us off? Eric? Well, you mentioned John John Candelaria and his uh, no-hitter, and that was on Monday Night Baseball. Right. And so the whole nation saw it. It was a very different country then. Um, you know, you hardly ever got to see teams like the Pirates were in New York. Right. Um, so here Candelaria pitches a no-hitter. It is um, on the front page of every sports section in the country. In today's paper, Lincecum, I know in the New York Post, like that size, deep in, not a big deal. Today you have PlayStation, uh, you have TV, um, you have the internet. So you have all these distractions. So here's the question. Does baseball ever get the popularity back that it once had in the 70s because of all these distractions? And, and one other thing, back in 76, you had six or seven TV stations as opposed to today, and we listen to games on the radio. I'm exactly your age. So, right. so can baseball ever get back to where it was in 76? I, I don't see how it could. I don't, I, don't, I don't see any sport ever getting to that level uh, in, the, in this country again. I, I think there's, there's, there are too many distractions. Like you said, there are you know, hundreds of channels. There's, you know, there, I mean, even with... You know, if, if you brought it out to the you know the concept of popular culture, like like I don't think thing I don't think people get as obsessed with it, you know on a broad level like they do you know like like someone like Mark Fittrich, uh who you know went for, you know by the end of June he was a you know huge baseball star in June '76. By the end of the summer he was. You know, he was like Peter Frampton and the Fonz combined. You know, it's like he totally transcended baseball and was just this like, you know, pop cultural icon. And it's really hard for me to even picture a baseball player ever attaining that level of pop cultural icondom again because I think people are just so You're distracted. The well, well, maybe if, you know, maybe if the Kardashians played baseball, <laughs> it, would, it, would, it would it would happen. But it's it's yeah, just you know and. and to some degree, I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing. I think, like, like, I like the fact that there are all these different pockets for people to project their own interests on, and it's not all about, it's not just about sports, it's not just about whatever. But but at the same time, I do think it's, you know, there was something something really cool about the way you know, people would come together around a, a player or an event or, you know, in the World Series. Like, we're never going to see ratings like they had in, you know, the mid-70s. That's, that's, that's gone. With Fittrich, um, I always got the sense that his popularity, and, and maybe you addressed it in, in the book, but it was the dawn of free agency. And fans had a bad taste in their mouths about free agency. 
and fidget as he came out of nowhere and was such a, a breath of fresh air. Do you, do you talk about that? Oh, definitely. And and I talk about how, I mean, I think he really, you know, especially like pitching for the Detroit Tigers, you know, pitching in Detroit, all these working class people who were, you know, were struggling. And, and yeah, and those are the people who were really pissed off about the whole free agency thing. Like, these guys should be happy to be playing a kids game, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Fidrich is not only out there playing like a kid, he's making rookie minimum. So he can't even afford a car. And he, he's got he's to hitch rides to the stadium with Tom Verizon. That's, that's <laughs> you know, and, and yet he's bringing in 50,000 people to Tiger Stadium every time he pitches. So there is this whole campaign called Send a Buck to the Bird, where people, uh, you know, like literally people would just, you know, stuff a dollar, five dollars in an envelope, Mark Fidrich, pair to Detroit Tigers, Tiger Stadium, put it in the mail. And, you know, he started opening up his fan mail and was like finding all these dollar bills. He's like, man, I can go get drunk tonight. <laughs> but uh, Ralph Howe uh, convinced him to give it all back, said it was setting a bad precedent. And But yeah, that I think that that's precisely why they, they took to him like they did. Anybody? You talked about the book and the decisions of which players to Okay, the, uh, let me preface this by saying I had very little control over the cover of the book. Uh, St. Martin's art department is infamously unwilling to take author input. <laughs> so, like, basically, and I learned this with Big Hair at Plastic Grass, basically all you can do is give them a list of things you'd like to see and keep your fingers crossed. Now, there's an interesting uh, story that goes with that. We, I mean, I was generally pretty happy with what they, what they came up with. I thought the choice of um, Mickey Lolich and Joe Torrey on a motorcycle together was cool, but the Mets were not really big players in 76, so I just figured that's New York Publishing House getting their <laughs> The you know I was very happy to see Ralph the Roadrunner Gar uh, in White Sox shorts on the cover. I thought that was very key that they got that in there. And of course Chris Chambliss hitting the um, game-winning home run in uh, the bottom of the ninth, uh, Game Five of the American League Championship Series against the Royals definitely deserves to be on there. Mike Schmidt certainly deserves to be on there as well. He led the uh, National League in home runs that year for the third straight season, uh, but. I wonder if anybody can notice, anybody notices anything yeah. interesting? Uh, the uniform wasn't the uniform they wore in 76. Okay, that's, uh, yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> batting glove? No mustache. Yeah. Oh, no mustache, yeah. yeah. Mike Schmidt had a mustache in 1976. It was a 76 patch. Right, well, so yeah, exactly, no, right, no bell patch. And uh, but so I believe this is actually from '74. But I was given two options: this cover or one with George Brett in the in place of Mike Schmidt. But Brett was because he was a left-handed hitter, was facing a different way, and it looked really awkward. Also, like the Phillies are, su- I mean, as we were talking about, the Phillies are such a big part of this book. I really wanted to see them represented on the cover. So I was afraid if I said. But that picture's from 74. Then they would just, like, slap the bread on and say, okay, take this. So I just said, yeah, why don't we go with the Schmidt? That looks good. And uh, 
but I've, uh, a few people have called me out on it. So, I, so really, if anybody here tonight wants, I will uh, color a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> With every book sold, uh, you get a few mustache. Pat. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the Tory Lola's picture, that was from the next 4th of July celebration that year. I think it was actually later, I think it was from Photo Day, which was oh. a little later that season. Now, on the 4th of July, the teams that were home, did they all have a celebration? Yeah, they, they, they did. I can't, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember what the Mets did, but uh, um, yeah, everybody, everybody of, of course, I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was impossible to get away from the July 4th celebrations that year. It's like, whether it's the tall ships in New York Harbor or, you know, Baltimore with their world's largest birthday cake, which is a total, like, fiasco. The, 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 the thing wound up, like, it lost all its frosting in an in a unexpected rainstorm, and then, and, then, and then, like, they refrosted it, and it was overrun by rats. So they were, they, were, they were supposed to make the money back by selling off pieces of it, but after the rats got to it, nobody really wanted it. <laughs> Dan, uh, I got the book, and I have to say thank you, because uh, I was looking at that cover and just wondering, is he going to go first inning, second inning for the chapters? <laughs> you can't get the music out of your head. So it's uh, the president of the Bicentennial Club in my high school. That <laughs> uh, I was just curious about, well, the Billy Martin uh, uh, the, mom- the momentum that Bill Martin holds on to. Uh, I had never heard about that. The, the, I, yeah. the Benito Mussolini coin? Yeah. I believe, I believe they talk, uh, Peter Golenbach talks about that in his, uh, uh, what was it, Wild High and Tight? Yeah. The, uh, the, that he would carry it, like a 1943 Italian coin with Benito Mussolini's head on it. That was like he just had that with him at all times, which pretty much told you all you needed to yeah, know about his managerial <laughs> style. <laughs> Is there any uh, oral history or personality that you're able to touch base with that really sticks in your mind with regards to stars and strikes? You, you mean in terms of players I interviewed? Yes. Well, you know, to tell you the truth, I didn't interview that many players because I find that a lot of times their memories can be a little hazy and it's, you know, you wind up hearing a lot of the same kind of generalizations and it's... You know, um, and and in some cases, like they don't want to talk, or it's it's um, it, it's a lot of legwork for not a lot of return. Um, the one one player who I who I did talk to uh, at length uh, via email, but he was very uh, warm and forthcoming was Kenny Holtzman, who uh, and he was somebody I kind of wanted to talk to because there were you know he's he's the He's one of the Oakland A's guys who are like making huge salary demands just so Finley will get rid of him because they they want they all want out of Oakland, and um, so he doesn't doesn't sign his his contract with Oakland. Finley ships him to Baltimore with Reggie Jackson in you know that trade at the beginning of the year. So, but he's kind of overshadowed by the fact that Reggie doesn't report for another month and and you know sulks in Hawaii for until he figures out what to do. And then he gets traded to the Yankees in the middle of June in that blockbuster ten-player deal. And you know, there, there's a lot of you know. I, I have a Facebook page for Big Hair and Plastic Grass, and every time I 
post something about Billy Martin. Inevitably, somebody goes like, oh, you know, he was an anti-Semite, and he didn't start Holtzman in the playoffs in the 1976 World Series because, you know, he hated Jews and all this. And, you know, I think Billy was kind of an equal opportunity racist, but <laughs> the, but I don't think that was the issue, and, and the Holtzman doesn't think that was the issue either. The issue really was more, and Ron, we were talking about this earlier, that, that Billy... Billy wanted a hand in every trade that the Yankees did. And when the Yankees made that deal with the Orioles, uh, Martin had nothing to do with it. He had no input. And, um, and, and Steinbrenner said to him, you have to win the pennant now because we got you all these guys. You have no excuse. And so that really rubbed him wrong because they've been in first place pretty much since the second day of the season and you know, were just completely running away with the division. And so Holtzman was kind of like this reminder that, like, you know, my destiny is not my own. And so it was kind of, you know, passive-aggressive way of getting back at Steinbrenner was to not play the guys that he went out and got. And so I think that's, that's what happened uh, with Kenny Holtzman. What is he doing now? He's retired. Uh, he's living in St. Louis. Um, I think he, he uh, when we were talking, it was late 2012 or in 2011, uh, when did the Cardinals win the World Series last? Was it 2011? Yeah, so he had just yeah. been to the World Series, and you know he's a big Cardinals fan now, nice. and uh, and I think he grew up a big Cardinals fan because he was from the area. Um, yeah, he's, he's retired. He's working with uh, one of the like local Jewish community organizations on occasion, but mostly just kicking back and watching his grandkids. Most wins by any Jewish pitcher. Most wins by any Jewish pitcher. It's always it's a, a trivia question that stumps everyone. And, and, and people always forget he had yeah. seven more wins than Kopech. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and there's a, there and and he actually I believe pitched against Kopech and won in it was either Kopech's last or second to last regular season start ever in 1966, and so. And that was a big thing for him, of course, because you know the, both these Jewish lefties, like you know, he 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 grew up watching Kofax, and then he beat him in a game. So, so he he, he likes to talk about that a lot. <laughs> Anyone else from the uh, yes? Uh, Light Right on. Yeah. Question about the original Tiger Stadium. Sure. What do you think of the current status of an original Tiger Stadium? Well, I mean, I'm really uh, impressed by the Navinfield's uh, ground crew, the, 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 which is, I don't know how many people know about it, but there's a, essentially a grassroots organization that has taken upon itself to preserve the diamond uh, of Tiger Stadium. It's like the, the stadium is gone, but the diamond is still there, the mound, and They've installed a home plate, and they have games there, and really like trying to raise consciousness about it, and you know want to make it, you know, a protected park. And I think there's a lot of back and forth with the city about whether or not you know the city's going to allow them to do that. And I'm supposed to do a reading in in uh, uh, Detroit on August 16th, like a block down from from the field, and one of the guys who's in charge of it says like. Well, hopefully we can get you out to the field, but you know, like from, literally from day to day, we never know when the city's just going to come and like put a fence up around it and not let anybody in. So I, I'm I, I'm so impressed with their commitment and their work and what they've done with it. Uh, and it will be interesting to see what see what happens to it. But I, I I think the fact that they you know 
uh, I mean, look, that, that was the first place I ever saw a Major League Baseball game. Like, of course, it's a tragedy to me that they they they, 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 they destroyed that beautiful ballpark. Yeah, I was going to add the second part. You may have already answered it, but do you view Comerica as an upgrade? In my opinion, the only upgrade in Comerica is bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, to be honest, this is this is a hard thing to admit as a hardcore Tiger fan. I've never been to Comerica. Yeah. The only time I've been back to Detroit in the last 20 years, they were out of town. So I drove around the outside and kind of looked. And then I drove over to Tiger Stadium, which was still standing, and took a lot of photos outside of it. Um, I, uh, You know, yeah, it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of character. I, I, I hate the concept of, like, installing merry-go-rounds and things for kids at a ballpark. You know, it's like if they, if they can't hang with a baseball game, like, don't take them to a baseball game. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm very happy to see that it draws uh, so many fans and, you know, it's, it's really hard to get a Tigers ticket, which is a pretty amazing thing in itself. But, you know, I, I really wish they had taken the Fenway route and upgraded the uh, upgraded Tiger Stadium as much as, as the structure would allow and just, you know, just like really played up its icon status. Basically, fix the bathrooms. Well, right, right. Fix the back. You know, probably, probably, you know, would have had to do all kinds of things to the clubhouses yeah. and things and all and that, but... You know, it's funny, I don't remember the bathrooms at Tiger Stadium, right? But I remember the gangways and just like running around in there just like, you know, just how it smelled of like like you know, cigar smoke and hot dogs, and but also like it was. I re- distinctly remember this feeling of like it was like being in in a like an old battleship or something like that. Like you know, like I used to you know go see a lot of my grandfather would take me to see old battleships as, as a kid, and, and it had that same feeling in the sense that like you know they're like you're coming and going, but there are ghosts here that are always gonna you know be part of the. The structure and the atmosphere, and, and and I'm sure you don't get that sense walking into Comerica. It's in Detroit. <laughs> it's it's not very good. It's it's. I mean, it's of course it's never been good. I mean, I, I remember you know going to the games in the '70s and just like. You know, you have to you know pay kids to you know watch your car and, and stuff like that. And uh, a friend of mine recently told me about like he's like, yeah, I gotta make it make it over to Navin, you know, the Navin Field thing. He's like, he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna park my car in the same place my car was stolen in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> I have your book on the 70s, last congressional orders. How many days? Well, uh, that's a really good question um, because when I was writing Big Hair in Plastic Grass, I w- um, each chapter of that book is about a specific season. So that's basically I, I had twenty to twenty-five pages per season to work with. This, sir, is almost <laughs> four hundred pages. So the, there were there were a lot of things I had to leave out, uh, and 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 I felt. And one of the reasons I, I decided I wanted to write this book was of all the chapters in Big Hair and Plastic Grass, I felt 76 got the shorter shrift because there are so many things. You know, when, you, when you're talking about a season, you really have to kind of focus on the pennant races and the, 
batting leaders and the you know the World Series. And there's so much interesting stuff that happened in 1976 that had nothing to do with the pennant races. That had nothing to do with you know the I mean you know certainly the Dave Kingman Mike Schmidt home run race was interesting and 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 things like that. But they're they're just I felt like this allowed me to really bring a lot of the characters to life more. And uh, so I think if you like big hair and plastic grass, you should consider uh, <laughs> Stars and Strikes as your next purchase. Tigers and Cubs. Uh, does that translate to the greatest tabletop game ever made, Stratomatic? Oh, it sure does. I was a huge Stratomatic junkie as a kid, and uh, actually, my my lovely wife got me uh, Stratomatic for Christmas this past year. So, <laughs> with the 1971 season, which has been pretty interesting to play, I keep trying to get Doc Ellis to, to throw another <laughs> acid no hitter, but it's not happening. Uh, the yeah, no, that that was by far my. You know, I played. I never played APBA. I played uh, what's the one where you flick the uh, the arrow? It's like a it's oh, one uh, of the all star. Yeah, yeah, it's a or yeah, it may have been Catico. Yeah. And uh, but like I loved I loved Stratomatic because it, it felt more like you had a little more control over you know as a manager and and uh, yeah I, I logged. I mean I was talking about AM radio. I can't even calculate the number of hours I spent. You know, listen, listening to Top Forty and playing Stratomatic on the you know floor of my room. Shag carpeting. Yeah. Well, actually, no. I'm for, I wanted shag carpeting, but we we never had it. I felt very deprived. Seventies <laughs> child. Tim. Are you a passionate baseball fan today, or more of a historian? You talk so with so much passion about the past. You haven't been to America. Nothing negative. About no, 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 no. That's a good. Like that's a good question. I, you know, I, I do. I mean, I'm very passionate about the Tigers. The the um, and was very passionate about the Cubs until the last couple of years, where I just couldn't take it anymore. And now I sort of, sort of hold them at arm's length. You know, just like, oh, okay. Yeah, check the standings every once in a while. Like, yeah, they're still the worst team in the National <laughs> League. Right? Um, but it's it's hard. For, uh, I felt like the last couple of seasons, I was very involved in you know the day-to-day and paying a lot of attention. This year, with the book coming out, getting married, it's like that's all taken precedence. So I, you know, uh, I was on uh, Evan Davies' show on WFMU last night, and he, he mentioned that Tim Lincecum had just pitched a no-hitter that day. And it was like, you did? Like, you know, <laughs> I haven't even updated my MLB.com app on my phone yet, so... So it goes back and forth. I'm sure next season I'll be, you know, maybe even later this season, I'll, uh, depending on how the Tigers are doing, I'll be uh, be right back into it again. Did you ever meet Ernie Harlow? No. But I feel like I knew him, just like everybody else who grew up listening to the Tigers. Now, he was, I mean, I, I, I'm lucky in that living in L.A. I get to hear Vin Scully all the time. But to me, uh, as great as Vin is, Ernie will always... Have a place a little bit above them. <laughs> One more question. You grew up in Ann Arbor. What was your take on Bo Schembechler's involvement with the Detroit Tigers? I thought that was so weird. I thought, like, you know, I, I mean, you know, I was a big University of Michigan football fan. You know, we'd go to all, all the games, and you know, we used to have the joke in elementary school, like, why doesn't uh, but doesn't Bo Beckler's wife serve his cereal in a bowl because she's afraid he'll lose it? <laughs> so, 
so it's, it's like he, he was. Uh, so, so when he took over, the th- you know, we became the general manager, general manager, right, on the Tigers, or the president. Uh, you know, it was. It, it just seemed like, like, I don't know. It seemed almost like pandering to the Michigan fan base. Like we're, yeah, hey, we're bringing in this guy. You love Bo, you know, and uh, and I never really felt like he was a, you know, a suit. I mean, he, he was a, he was a great football coach, but I never really felt like he was a great baseball mind. The pedigree of all white men running baseball. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, well, I know. Well, this and the, this. When did Bo uh, come over to the Tigers? It was like mid eighties, right? They still so have oh, yeah, yeah, right. Well, right. right. <laughs> Not a whole lot of change there, unfortunately. Uh, with a with a tip of the cap to, to Evan, I'm a little embarrassed to mention this, to admit it, but one of my absolute favorite ball club records. Philly's fever. <laughs> Talk about Philly's fever. How do you catch it? Well, <laughs> is it contagious? Is there Should you see a doctor? And how do you get, how do you get rid of it? <laughs> well, yeah, the, okay, well, this goes back to what we were talking about, the Phillies, like, having this, like, you know, dynamite team chemistry. Uh, they actually, uh, five of the guys, uh, uh, Dave Cash, Gary Maddox, Mike Schmidt, Greg Lazinski, and Larry Boa, actually recorded a song together called Philly's Fever, which uh, was released on the Grand Prix label, which was like a local, actually an R&B label out of, out of Philly. And it's, it's if you haven't heard it, YouTube, do yourself a favor and YouTube it. And, and then do yourself a favor and turn it off. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like this common, it's got kind of a disco groove, but like, with like Sound of Philadelphia strings, but then they're you know they're singing in unison because none of them you know it's like kind of Super Bowl shuffle type of thing. Like none of them can actually sing, and then there um, there's like a CB radio undertone thing because of course CB radio is huge in '76. So so they do kind of a convoy thing, and they, there's you know it's like like uh, you know what's the hippest. State of town. Oh, I'd say it's Veterans Stadium, good buddy. Oh, that's a 10 4. It's Gary Maddox and Dave Cash talking, swapping CB lingo. So, yeah, it, it actually it goes for a lot of money on eBay. I tried to buy a copy because there is. Um, I, I did get, uh, was able to acquire the rights to reproduce the picture sleeve in this book. Um, there we go. Phillies Fever. And uh, but I wanted to buy a copy just so you know I I could uh, reproduce it um, for this and and they're going for like you know forty or fifty bucks a pop if you can find them so and it's yeah it's not really worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Only thing I've ever liked about the Phillies. <laughs> Well, I, th- I think this is a good spot to end the podcast. Uh, so I selfishly want to thank you for bringing me back to uh, being a 16-year-old. Again. Nothing selfish about it, man. Thank you for bringing me back to the uh, clubhouse. Yeah, a- anytime, anytime. It's been fantastic. And for those listening to the podcast, wherever you are, the book Stars and Strikes, Baseball in America in the Bicentennial Summer of 76, published by Thomas Dunn Books, the author Dan Epstein. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you.